You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is from Romans 9. We're going to start in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather, Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. Air conditioner is on, I promise. It's been running all morning, ready to greet you with a nice cool 81 degrees today. Recently, a small group of friends and I were playing a really stupid game called Would You Rather? And it's where you present two scenarios and then choose the lesser of the two evils. And it morphed into sort of philosophical, ethical questions like if you saw a random person being attacked by a puma, you know, like a jungle cat, uh, would you step in, put your life on the line to save that individual? And then it kind of morphed into, well, would you go and save that person if you knew, definitively knew, that they were going to become a mass murderer? (laughs) Would you save their life, you know? And it got you thinking now. And really, what it highlights is that there are all sorts of dilemmas that arise when you try to determine who is and who isn't deserving of life or opportunity or a future. This American Life released an episode earlier this year called Making the Cut, and it told the story of the early years of dialysis treatment in 1960 with the invention of this machine that helped treat kidney failure and a life saving way, a new problem arose. Because there was this life-changing technology, but the supply was, the supplies were extremely limited. And so a medical problem was traded for an ethical problem. Here was the ethical problem. Who gets chosen to be saved? All these people dying of kidney failure and this very limited amount of machinery. And so the inventing doctor was crushed by the weight of having to choose which patients would live and which patients would not. And so the administration overseeing the hospital assembled a team that would later be called, I kid you not, the God Committee. 
And it was made up of people from different walks of life, like a banker, a surgeon, a lawyer, a laborer, a, a homemaker, a clergyman. And this committee came up with a series of qualifications. One was geography. The people had to live near the hospital where this technology was. Also, age. The individual had to be not too young. had to be between the age of 18, but not too old, and between the age of 18 and 45. And then, and here's the problem, and then a broad category was created called social worth. Now remember, this is 1960. And it was qualifications based on whether or not an individual was married, they had children, their occupation, how much they made, their community involvement, their emotional stability, their past job performance, their future potential. In other words, it was based on merit meeting some sort of standard of good and then being deemed deserving and worthy to continue to live based on meeting that standard. And as you can imagine, this became widely criticized by, by many people. And it highlighted something, that there is no way to determine who deserves to be saved and who doesn't. It creates too many problems. Someone's life shouldn't hang in the balance based on merit, they're good or bad, no matter how good they are and no matter how bad they are or what they contribute to society. And so they dissolved the committee and found other ways to determine who would receive the treatment based on like a lottery system, something more random. See, things go terribly wrong when we begin to divide the world between deserving and undeserving, but that doesn't stop us, does it? We look back throughout history, humanity has done this forever, we look at our time today, we're continuing to divide the world between those who are deserving and not, and sadly, we continue to see this pattern appearing in the church as well. It was occurring in the first century, church in Rome, specifically at that time, between two ethnic cultural groups called the Gentiles and the Jews, and sadly, it continues in our time today based on race or politics or level of education or sexuality or fill in the blank. However, the good news that Paul has been presenting us with all throughout the book of Romans is that this is not how God interacts with us. And despite our caricatures of God, that he is this big cosmic figure with this giant scale in the sky where he is weighing out our good and bad to determine who is in and who is out, we are actually told that God relates to his people not on the basis of merit, but on the basis of grace. Earlier in Romans, we read this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what levels the playing field between all people, and yet are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by what? Faith. The gospel that Paul has been highlighting takes salvation, our life, our purpose, our belonging, our future, all of it, out of the categories of deserving and not deserving and places it all into an entirely different category called grace, which means undeserved favor, which is unearned kindness. And this is an extremely important backdrop to the passage that we're looking at today. We are focusing 
on God's sovereign choice, and we are being introduced to what is called the doctrine of election, which put simply means that those who come to God are those whom God first has chosen and drawn to himself. And here's the truth. We don't understand how God's choice of people works. And we don't know why some individuals are chosen to be recipients of God's grace and rescue and others are not. We don't know those reasons, but what Paul is insisting on us grasping and knowing for sure is that those reasons simply aren't found in us. Those reasons are found in God and his purpose. If someone were to ask you, why are you a Christian? How do you respond? Why, why are you a Christian? Why, are, why, why do you belong to the Christian faith? Now, we may come up with a lot of right answers to that question, but your answer has got to conclude with something to the effect of because God was gracious to me. Yeah, I'm a Christian because I've trusted in Christ. Yeah, I'm a Christian because I found the gospel narrative to be the most compelling story in the entire universe. Yes, I'm a Christian because I've seen it transform my life and the lives of the people around me. But at the end of the day, I'm a Christian because God chose me and drew me to himself because of his grace. I'm a Christian because of God. Now, Romans is intended to sh really uh, to show us that, that God, through his son, Jesus Christ, has formed a new humanity, one that's not based on our race or our gender or our religious performance or our religious upbringing or our cultural practices, and God help us, our social worth, no matter what good we have or what bad we have, no, no amount of even our strength in our trust, but based on God's gracious choice and calling. How are we a part of this new humanity? Because of God. And this grace, I really believe firmly today, this grace softens our hearts towards others and causes us to want to see other people belong as well. That's kind of the big idea. What we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage under three headings. I, I, I really, we're looking at a pretty complex, really deep passage, but I I want us to see three basic themes that are present in this passage. First, we see Paul's heart. Secondly, we see Israel's heritage. And then thirdly, I want us to see our history. So if you're taking notes, the first point is this, Paul's heart. Look at me again in verses one and two. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, this is probably one of the most overlooked portions in Romans 9. Before Paul gets into some very heavy theology, he first lets us know how it has personally affected him. He leads not with highbrow intellect or religious controversy, but with his heart. You notice that? He leads with his heart. He leads with how this has emotionally affected him. And the question that I really want us to consider before we even dive into the point, this point is this. How have you been emotionally affected by the truths of God's word lately? How have you been stirred by the truths of God's word lately? Not what do you know or what do you know to be true specifically, but how has it affected you? How has it stirred you? And I ask because this isn't just dry, lifeless doctrine. This isn't just 16th century Protestant Reformation controversy. This 
is heart-stirring truth. This is heart-stirring truth that ought to move us in our souls, truth that we ought to desire to see others believe as well. And so he shares this, this deep emotional response to the fact that many of his own people, despite their blessings, despite, despite their, their heritage, have sadly rejected Jesus and the salvation that's found solely in him. Now, one of the consequences of living in what has been called the hyper-connected society that we live in, where we are constantly being exposed to significant needs and significant tragedies every single day through our social media and our, no our news feeds, one, one of the consequences of living in this time is something that's called the collapse of compassion or compassion fade. And it's the theory that as the size of a need or the size of a tragedy or the size of some sort of sad story increases, our empathy does what? Decreases. What's the age-old phrase? The death of one is a tragedy. The death of a million, statistic. So we see these things, we're exposed to these things that far exceed our capacity to to process. We can't wrap our minds and hearts around them. We become overwhelmed by the, the, the constant news feed that we're seeing. And so out of self-preservation, we just emotionally disengage. We just start caring less about big issues. Notice how when the, the tower, that, that, that condo tower in Miami, in the Miami area collapsed originally, and we knew that there was like nine to 10 people for sure confirmed dead. Everyone was heart gripped. As that number goes up, it shows up less and less in the news. We care less and less about it. As the need goes up, our concern goes down. And sadly, this also happens for us as believers when we think about Jesus's mission, his worldwide mission and the tragedy of sin and unbelief. There are millions worldwide that have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? There are probably an equal amount of people today that have rejected the good news of Jesus Christ. There are thousands within our city that do not have someone to share the life-transforming message of Jesus Christ with them. And right now, being raised in our own homes is a generation that is statistically most apt or most inclined to reject the Christian faith more than any other generation represented here today. How is that affecting us? See, it's easy to become overwhelmed and even indifferent to the reality of countless people that are far from God and, and far from his family, that are under judgment because of sin and unbelief. It's easy to just grow indifferent. Am I alone in this? It's just easy. Just I can't, I can't even process that. I don't know. But not so for Paul. With great tragedy, notice, comes great sorrow and unceasing anguish. What we see here is that he is unwilling to avoid the emotional toll of love. Love is costly, and to love anyone costs us emotionally. There's, there's emotional toll involved in love. And, and this is how you know that you have a genuine love for your neighbor. You're willing to be broken up inside for them. There's a willingness to be heart-wrenched for lost family and friends and neighbors and coworkers and the world around us. Now, we have to be very careful to not be swept up 
in the ideology of self-care and self-love that is constantly telling us to only surround ourselves with people that bring us good vibes. We're constantly being told to reject people that are gonna drain us emotionally. And what we've then, because of this, started to do is to divide the world between those who bring good vibes and, quote, toxic people. Notice something, biblically speaking, every single one of us are sinful and therefore toxic. And if God avoided toxic people, no one would be saved. Notice how it's non-religious and yet that spiritual and yet ungodly impulse to divide the world between the deserving and the undeserving, good vibes and the toxic people. Not only that, but also we've been conditioned to only put ourselves in situations that bring joy and ease and fill us with emotional health and emotional joy. I want to seriously ask us today, how is that compatible with the scriptures? Because it seems like Jesus was constantly moving towards the area that would be taxing emotionally for him. Putting him in in positions, even standing at a, a vantage point where he could overlook Jerusalem and then be emotionally moved with compassion because they were a flock without a shepherd. Jesus moved himself towards the emotionally difficult situations. How does that compare with this ideology of self-care and self-love? I, I really need us to consider that this morning. This is bare minimum, guys, bare minimum. The people of God have to be willing to be broken inside, to experience anguish and sorrow and turmoil and pain for the sake of love. C.S. Lewis once said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully round with your hobbies and your little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it's going to change. It won't be broken, don't worry. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Let me put it in different language. To love is to be broken, is to be pained, is to be heart-wrenched. In fact, Paul's not only willing to allow his heart to be wrung, he goes even further. Look with me in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, a little bit of history here. Because of Paul's care and concern for the Gentile world, that means any non-Jew, which is probably almost every single one of us, because of Paul's concern for Gentiles and their inclusion into God's family, he began to be regarded as sort of a traitor from his own people. What, why do you care so much about them? Are you forgetting your roots? What about us, the Jewish people? Have you abandoned us? Have you abandoned your own people? And so he wants the Roman church to know that he still feels deeply for his own Jewish people and that he's actually willing to suffer ultimate loss for them. As he describes here, if it were humanly possible. Now remember Romans 8, it is not possible to be separated from Christ. This is a bit of hyperbole, 
If it were possible, he says, I would gladly, willingly be emptied of all of my benefits of trusting in Christ. I would gladly be cut off and accursed so that my fellow kinsmen, my brothers and sisters, according to the flesh, could be brought in. Now, what's the application for this? I don't think it means that we go around, walking around, trying to lose our salvation. One person laughed. Thank you, David. Tough crowd today. I knew that I would get this with election, but I didn't know it would be this tough. Here's, I think, the application. The love of Christ makes us willing to suffer loss for the benefit of other people. Whether it's our convenience, whether it's our comfort, whether it's our financial security, whether it's our time, whether it's our energy. The Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, I will most gladly, not begrudgingly, but most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. My prayer is that God would make us, reality, gladly willing as well. We see Paul's heart. Secondly, we see Israel's heritage. You guys still with me today? Okay, let me know. Israel's heritage. Now, an important, another bit, important bit of context here. In the year 49 AD in Rome, the Emperor Claudius expelled all of the people with Jewish heritage from the city. It was an ethnic cleansing, ethnic purge from the entire city. They were all pushed out of Rome, pushed out of their homes, places of worship, and so on. And so what happened was a church that at one time had predominant uh, majority Jewish representation, in fact, it was founded by Jewish converts, all of a sudden became a homogenous Western Gentile church. No Jews present. And for five years, they existed as a completely homogenous church, very Western ideas and values and those sort of things. But in 54 AD, the edict is lifted, the Jews come back into Rome, and what they discover is a very different church than when they left. A predominantly Jewish church became a predominantly Gentile church. The Gentiles had become the majority. And sadly, with this came a sense of superiority that always sadly comes with a majority. And the idea was that the Gentiles were better than the Jews. Well, look at our lives. We didn't get kicked out of our city, so we must be doing something right. Like today, we can start thinking that Christianity is an American faith or a white faith or a religion of the privileged. Look at our blessings. We are loved and highly favored. Clearly, we're on God's side here. We didn't get kicked out of Rome. Clearly, we must be the favored people. And so the Gentiles began to think that they had special privilege, special blessing from God because of their situation. And Paul is going to nip this in the bud by showing them that their salvation and their inclusion into God's family, all the spiritual blessings that they have, are actually the result of what God had done through Israel. It was a wake-up call. So look at me again in verse 4 and 5. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Go ahead and keep that up for just a moment. Let's walk through that and just consider some of these words. To them was given the adoption. It was this people that God chose out of all the nations to be his prized possession. It was this people that God delivered out of Egypt and slavery. In fact, he didn't just call them his prized people. He called them his son. And the glory of all the people in the world, God chose to dwell with Israel, to appear with them in, in 
in fire and in cloud. And, and the covenants, he, he, this wasn't just a casual relationship with the people. He entered into a love relationship. He entered into covenants with Abraham and his descendants. And the giving of the law. It was this people that God gave his life-transforming instructions so that they could experience blessing and life in their land. And the worship. This was the people that could access the presence of God through temple worship. And the promises. It was this people that God promised a land and a future and a deliverance. And the patriarchs of faith like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and David and on. And then finally, most importantly, the Christ. This is something remarkable to consider. Because as Paul alludes to here, and this is a sermon for a different day, Jesus is both fully God and fully human. He is God over all, blessed forever, amen. But he's also born according to the flesh. And where did he descend from? Well, read Matthew and Luke and the genealogies. He descended from Israel. Jesus was born and raised a Jew. And so that's kind of like the obvious point that Paul makes to knock down this argument. How can you be opposed to the Jews? Your Savior was a Jew. How could you justify, and here's the application for us, because the Jew-Gentile dynamic may not be present in our church, but there are racial dynamics present. How could you justify looking down on a certain people group when you've been welcomed into something that you clearly didn't inherit or deserve yourself? Why would you even, why wouldn't you want to see more people belong? Why wouldn't you want to see more people a part of this family? And especially the very people that this whole thing started with. Reality, our faith, our community, our future, our hope, everything that we cherish as near and dear as a church, all that we have in Jesus Christ, it all stems from this shared story of promise that we have been brought into by faith. None of this do we have a claim on. The moment that we start to get uncomfortable because something has changed or wait, we start to look down the aisle and start to look down our nose at someone that looks different or acts different or orients their life differently. That mo any moment that that begins to happen, we need to remember, I don't have a claim on this. This isn't my thing. I have no control over it. All is grace. Amen? Let's look finally at our history. Our history. I love this story. I'll never forget. Pastor Lee, one of our former elders who uh, over the last year moved out of state, he bought this brand new Bible. And he was all about showing off this Bible. And he goes and shows one of his sons, his adult son, and the, and the son asks to look at the Bible. And he, he opens it up. And let me see if I can do this without tearing the page. He, he opens it up to that page that separates the Old Testament and the New Testament, just a blank page that says the New Testament. And without asking, he takes it into hand, his hands and he just tears the page out. And he hands it back to his dad. And he says, it's one testament, dad, not two. One unified story, not two. And that's sort of a dramatic uh, display for a really important truth. It's important that we understand that God didn't scrap the old plan and then start something new, the 2.0, plan B, with the New Testament church, us. He abandoned the old plan. That didn't, no, that didn't work out well. Let's do something else to Jesus today. See, our faith 
retraces its history back through the pages of the Old Testament. Those obscure passages where you're like, I don't know what to do with that, it's still our history. That's our lineage. But with this important point, Paul then anticipates an objection. And here's the objection. Paul is very witty. And he foresees this question arising. And here it is. All right, Paul, if nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, remember Romans 8? If nothing can separate us, how do you explain the many Israelites, God's chosen people, who are now living separated from God and have rejected Jesus Christ? God promised Israel that they would be his people. It doesn't look like that. Does that mean that God's promise has failed for them? And does that mean then God's promises to us will fail as well? Reasonable question. And Paul answers like this, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Has God's word failed? No. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. We're diving deep. Stick with me. Here's the pressing question. And I think if we don't answer this correctly, we don't get anything here. Who is Israel? That's a complicated question. Take the Bible out of it. That's a complicated question. Is Israel this weird, small, little geographic place in a highly desired area, highly contended area in the Middle East? Is Israel an ethnic people group? Is, is Israel a cultural group, these cultural enclaves in places like New York and other places? Is it strictly a religious group? Who is Israel? And the answer is that it may not be who you thought it was. God's vision for Israel was never simply about forming an ethnic or cultural group. It was about a people of promise that would be chosen among the nations according to God's promise and purposes. And here, here's, the, here's the thing that we have to grasp, but Paul is saying you've got to understand this. Some who descended from Abraham are not included in true Israel. Just because you're a blood relative doesn't make you true Israel. And here's the good news for us. And others who did not physically descend from Abraham are included as well. Now, to anyone who would object, say, well, that doesn't make sense. Paul shows that this is actually very consistent all throughout redemptive history, all the way back to Israel's beginning in the person of Abraham. Paul illustrates this with the children of Abraham, first with Isaac and Ishmael, one child of promise, one who was not, and Jacob and Esau, again, one who was chosen, the other one who was excluded and rejected. Now, that's the explanation for Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. This is covenant language. Jacob I received, Esau I rejected. And here's the reversal that's happening. In both cases, God reverses the process that is typical in families where the firstborn gets the blessing, does a switcheroo, and he gives the blessing to the younger son. The promise is given to the undeserved son. That's the pattern that means something significant to us today. 
And in verse 11, though they were not yet born or had done neither good or bad, it had nothing to do with their life or their lifestyle. But in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And here, here's where this applies for us. We inherit the promises of God the very same way. Not because of anything in us, but because of God's grace. Amen? There's a children's song that if you grew up in the church, uh, I can guarantee that you know. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father, Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord, okay? Let's just praise. Now, we may joke about that, but I, I was thinking about it. I don't think we sing any other worship songs that dive us that deep into what Romans 9 is talking about. What other song is saying, I wasn't born into the lineage of Abraham, but now I'm a part of the family? This is actually rich theology. We are children of God and his promise through faith. And because of that, we have become full-fledged children. Full-fledged children. And we've come into this family the unconventional way. Now, this, this hits close to home for, for me. As many of you know, or some of you may know, Michelle and I chose to expand our family, not just through natural descendants, but we also chose to expand our, expand our family through adoption. And our story, like the story of God's people, has had tons of ups and downs. And it's been filled with sin and failure and struggles to integrate and birth order challenges and competition and you name it. Adoption, like God's family, is messy. But the gift is that it's taught me so much about grace. And really, if I could be honest, it's taught me so much about my inclusion into God's family. A family I came into the unconventional way. And I think that this is what Paul is trying to get us to see. You are here because God graciously chose for you to be here. So stop thinking that you've somehow deserved this. And stop thinking that you have to somehow earn your keep. Let it fill you with humility. Let it fill you with amazement and wonder and gratitude and let it stir you and your desire to see others far from God come home as well. See, the topic of election is seen by many, and it, it's been abused by so many people, so don't get me wrong. But it's been seen by many as this narrow, exclusive thing that leads to superiority. But I think that this misses the point because the point here is not about God being exclusive. The point that Paul is making here is how radically inclusive God is. And that anyone who repents and believes on Jesus Christ can get in on this. He has ex extended his welcome far beyond what we could ever imagine to the people that we could never imagine belonging. And now the task of every generation, our generation specifically, is to welcome as many home as possible. And here's how we can come and get in on this, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not explicitly mentioned, but there are hints of Jesus woven all throughout this passage. As Paul is willing to allow his heart to be wrung, what he's reflecting is the character of Jesus who himself allowed his heart to be wrung for his people. 
As, Je- as Paul says, I'm willing to be cursed and cut off so that others could be brought in. Jesus wasn't just willing, he was. Jesus became the curse and he was cut off from the people of God so that you and I could be brought into this family. And as Paul talks about the older brother becoming the servant of the younger brother, this points us to Jesus, who was despised and rejected so that you and I could be loved and received. It's not just Jacob was loved and Esau was hated, it was you and I were loved because Jesus was hated. This all points to Jesus. And it's through faith in this Jesus that today you can belong. And it's through faith in this Jesus that you and I today can remain in such a beautiful, messy family, like God's family. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.